Once upon a time, I, Aaron, dreamt I was the void, vast and empty, and for all intents and purposes, a void. I was conscious only of my happiness as a void, unaware that I was Aaron. Soon I awaked, and there I was, veritably myself again. Now I do not know whether I am a void, dreaming I am a man, or a man who is yearning to embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 116 of Embrace the Void, where we love to waddle around in the philosophical mud. I'm your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is my not-really-nemesis from Philosophy Twitter. Um, We cover lots of my favorite things, so let's get to the mirror match. My guest this week is Aaron Novick, an assistant professor of philosophy at Purdue University. His work focuses on philosophy of biology and the nature of scientific concepts. Aaron, would you like to say hi to the Void? Hello, Void. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, other Aaron. Yes. (coughs) We can finally do our Aaron v. Aaron mirror match. Um, Do you want to wear the goatee or shall I? I grew out my facial hair one time uh, and I felt even more like an imposter than I usually do. So please, you wear the goatee. Okay, fine. That's fair. I'll be good to you guys time. Um, great. So uh, I'm really excited to have you on. We've got um, two big subjects to talk about that are maybe the same subject, just by different names, um, as we often do on The Void. We're going to dive, uh, divide our time between sort of boring, old Western analytic philosophy and exciting, innovative, non-Western philosophy. Um, this time, uh, I thought we'd start with our dessert first and do the non-Western material because you and I share a love for uh, Zhuangzi. Um, do you want to explain a little bit to folks who Zhuangzi is um, and why you love his work so much? Yeah, sure. So, um, in a way, the question of who Zhuangzi was is kind of hard to answer because um, mm. I think you actually have to give three different answers to it. So the mm-hmm. simplest answer is that uh, Zhuangzi was a philosopher alive during the Warring States period of China's history, so around the 4th century BC, mm-hmm. uh, and traditionally regarded as the author of this sort of classic book that bears his name, uh, the Zhuangzi. But we actually know that Zhuangzi himself didn't write the entire book. It's a sort of multi-authored, multi-layered book that was compiled over uh, centuries. Uh, he may have written some of it, Uh, but we don't actually know exactly which bits he himself wrote, uh, if any. But despite that, and so this is then the second sort of answer of who Zhuangzi is, despite that, there's this kind of reasonably consistent ethos running through the book. And Mm -hmm. Zhuangzi, and like the Zhuangzi who I really love, is the like hypothetical constructed character who embodies that ethos, Mm -hmm. um, who's may or may not, be the like actual author of any of it. And then finally, um, Zhuangzi is a character in the book, um, appearing in a number of the stories. And again, like the relationship between this Zhuangzi and the other two is a bit nebulous. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of like a Socrates in that sense, where there's there could be a historic figure. There's the character in the Platonic dialogues or something. And this is also we should we should mention Zhuangzi is of the Taoist persuasion, um, and 
we did a previous episode back on episode 48, if folks want to go back and listen, where we talked about Taoism and we covered primarily the Tao Te Ching and Lao Tzu, who also has a similar kind of multi-part answer to the question of who he is and where do these you know texts come from. Um, so we're going to we'll probably draw on that a little bit in this conversation when we talk about sort of the basic ideas of Taoism, but I would highly recommend folks go back and listen to um, episode 48 as well. So uh, saying that, um, how do you feel like Zhuangzi does an interesting job sort of developing the ideas of Taoism that are presented in the Tao Te Ching? Yeah, I actually want to challenge a bit that way okay. of framing it, because um, mm-hmm. I think there's an important sense <laughs> Like a good in philosopher, which... that's fair. Yeah, there's an important sense in which Zhuangzi wasn't really a Taoist. And what I mean by this is that um, if you think about Taoism as a coherent school of thought and as a religion that's taking Mm -hmm. the Zhuangzi and the Tao Te Ching as its central texts, Mm -hmm. that wasn't consolidated until well after Zhuangzi's lifetime. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the text of the Zhuangzi predates the Tao Te Ching. Uh, Zhuangzi would not have had the category of Taoist to understand himself. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think like maybe a more accurate way to see Zhuangzi is as developing um, some ideas of the philosopher Yang Zhu in his own way. So Yang Zhu was sort of this egoist emphasizing self-preservation, famously supposed to have said that uh, he wouldn't sacrifice a hair on his body to save the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and Zhuangzi sort of takes some of those ideas in a more expansive direction. And I think uh, mm. A.C. Graham's Disputers of the Tao is a really good book that talks about some of these issues. But like, okay, the Zhuangzi and the Tao Te Ching did get sort of wrapped up together. Mm-hmm. And one of the sort of shared themes in them, and when you get into later strata of the Zhuangzi, you do actually start seeing sort of parallel passages. Mm-hmm. So what became the Tao Te Ching is sort of filtering into what became the Zhuangzi as well. Um, There are shared sources there. One of the shared themes that comes up um, is this sort of shared distrust of Confucian moralism. And that's sort of the biggest overlap. I actually think that the, um, there are important differences between them. So like before I, uh, before I came on, you were telling me that you like this passage where um, some officials try to get Zhuangzi into politics and mm-hmm. Zhuangzi asks about this like turtle shell um, that's been made into a very fancy bowl. And he asks them like, okay, think if you're the turtle, like, do you want to be this super fancy bowl in the palace or would you rather just be uh, dragging your tail in the mud? And the officials of course say the turtle would prefer to be dragging its tail in the mud. And Zhuangzi tells them, well, okay, like go away. Uh, let me drag my tail in the mud. Like I'm not going to have any <laughs> yeah. part of Politics. Uh, Whereas the Tao Te Ching, by contrast, sorry, one last thought. The Tao Te Ching, by contrast, is kind of, it's a manual for emperors, right? It's a political text. And I think that's a really fundamental difference between them. That's interesting. Um, uh, Thank you for the clarification. I'm not as, I I feel like I'm not as well versed um, as yourself and some of the other folks on sort of the connections between these different uh, um, uh, non-Western philosophers, even though I very much like um, they're writing, so it's good to understand. And I agree with you that one of the major common themes is that conf- that, that rejection of the kind of Confucian moralizing, which I take to be kind of like, um, you know, similar in some ways when, when Aristotle talks about, like, caring more about honor than virtue or something like that, caring about, caring about the external um, uh, f- sort of uh, facets of... Um, living the good life or doing the right thing rather than the actual internal true ways of acting in the right kind of ways. Uh, Would you say that's Mm. fair? Yeah. And there's like, I mean, mean, it's, I'm a little bit hesitant to make Zhuangzi into any kind of, any kinds of similarities with Aristotle, but, but there (laughs) is this like, because, because actually like, I think there are, there are really deep sort of commonalities in how Aristotle is thinking and how the Confucians are Mm -hmm. thinking. It's pretty common to understand the Confucians as developing a kind of virtue ethical tradition with Mm -hmm. the rights as the sort of mechanism of cultivation. Um, And Zhuangzi's sort of, at least parts of the Zhuangzi are sort of 
getting rid even of that. And there is then this focus on the inner, but it's the focused, it's a focus on the inner in a quasi uncultivated way, mm-hmm. or at least in a way that's not cultivated like that. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, and I, I didn't mean to say there's like a strict one-to-one sort of yeah, comparison yeah. between the two of them or anything like that. Though it is really fascinating to me that several of the passages in the Zhuangzi feel or are almost identical to passages from like the Platonic Dialogues and some of the the analysis in the Greek canon. So um, I imagine we'll talk about those um, as we move along some here. Do you want to just um, helping folks out as sort of like roadmaps? How does all of this tie in with Zen Buddhism? We probably, I realize we won't get into that too much, but like just to give people a sense of how that ties into this image. Yeah, so I don't I don't have a like deep answer to this, mm-hmm. um, but I, I know the sort of fairly standard boilerplate answer, uh, which is that when Buddhism entered China, uh, you had translators, you know, taking these Indian concepts and trying to um, express them in terms that uh, Chinese people would understand, and they didn't have sort of ready-made terms for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, like the ideas of Buddhism are fairly strange and and unintuitive. And so mm-hmm. in looking for ideas to, in looking for sort of established concepts that people had some grasp on to make sense of these new ideas, the translators often sort of ended up reaching for Taoist concepts, um, mm-hmm. which helped make these Buddhist ideas more comprehensible, but also distorted them in, in mm-hmm. interesting ways. And so Zen Buddhism is kind of what you get as this hybrid offspring of Mahayana Buddhism and Taoism. And so to give you just one example, right, at one point in the Zhuangzi, in the second chapter, I think, um, there's a description of a meditative state in terms of making the body like dead wood and the heart like ash. And mm-hmm. I've seen that exact, I forget exactly where it is. I think it might be in Dogen. Uh, but you see, you can see that exact same metaphor in some uh, Zen texts as a like, so like there's a sort of way that Taoism change the understanding or shape the understanding of what it is you're accomplishing when you're meditating as a Zen Buddhist. Yeah, and I think it makes a lot of sense because, you know, when I read Buddhism and when I read Taoism, I often feel like they're very close and connected and, and like sort of digging at the same sort of roots. And so it's not surprising to me that they come together well, but also they're both they're sort, of, they're sort of on the weirdy end of the tradition spectrum. And then so when you get weird plus weird, I feel like Zen Buddhism becomes sort of double weird as a result. Yeah. And you do see, like, you do see sort of later in the tradition, Buddhists, right, they, they still maintain as separate streams. You have Taoists and Buddhists mm-hmm. as separate entities. And so you do get criticism on sort of in both directions. And you see the Buddhists mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to say, like, well, here's how Zhuangzi failed. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't remember the details of why Zhuangzi gets it wrong, but they definitely thought you couldn't just be like Zhuangzi himself. Like that wasn't the full picture, even though it was a deep shape, deep influence mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. what they themselves were doing. Yeah. How um, how unfortunate that you don't remember the criticisms of the person you like so much. That's um, uh, very, very convenient. Yeah. I, weird how that worked out that way. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about some of the positive things about Zhuangzi, though. Um, he often writes where, where like the Tao is to me sort of like poetic sort of short um you know like like you were saying like descriptions of how people ought to act often in regard to politics and things like that um the Zhuangzi is more often like stories short stories of various sorts or parables mm-hmm. i guess and i was curious which of the the various parables that comes along in the Zhuangzi are some of your favorites yeah so i think like, let, let me give a kind of general answer and then I'll, then I'll get like mm-hmm. point to specific passages. So like what I really, what I really love about the Zhuangzi, I guess, I guess it's two things. Um, it's that it's profound and that it's funny. Um, and mm-hmm. it's profound in lots of ways and on a lot of topics. Um, but sort of one of the things running through it, and this is sort of what I was mentioning when I talked about the ethos running through it is that he has this like, remarkable ability to look at a world that's torn by cruelty and stupidity, right? He's, he's living in the warring states period, and it's called that for a reason. All these, China is fragmented mm-hmm. and all the different states are sort of either trying to sort of gobble up the other states or prevent themselves from being gobbled. So there's war sort of 
all the time um, for for no like really good purpose. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. able to look at this world that's torn by cruelty and stupidity and find possibilities for really genuine, rich, and fulfilling laughter mm-hmm. within it. Mm-hmm. And um, given given that we're like today living in the dumbest timeline, mm-hmm. right? I think we have we have a lot to learn from that. And then second, oh, go ahead. I just, just want to note there that it's fascinating. We've talked about a couple of different philosophers at this point on the show who um, were had their philosophy severely impacted by war of some sort. We've talked about John Rawls and his experiences in World War II. I've talked about Thomas Hobbes and his experiences during the, the English Civil War. And it's just really fascinating how different individuals when confronted with different sort of adverse horrific experiences sort of break in very different directions like i love hobbes leviathan but it's like it's not comedic right it's not for funsies um the way that this feels very much funsies yeah yeah and that's like the thing is like the the drama is just funny it's just Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. so like you know, there's the famous quip of Wittgenstein saying that you could write a philosophy book that consists only of jokes. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, that's the only funny thing he said. And it's funny because someone as humorless as him is saying, mm-hmm. oh, you could do philosophy through jokes. But despite him being like the worst person to say that, um, he, is, he wasn't wrong. And like the Zhuangzi mm-hmm. is a book of jokes and they're good jokes and so like in the very first parable and now i'll start to actually answer the question you asked which are what some of my favorite parables are like Mm -hmm. in the very first parable which is one of my favorites one of the things that happens is like so it's it drongsa tells this story of this giant fish that lives in the northern ocean whose name is kun which means like fish eggs so it's somehow this giant fish and also like the smallest form of fish that you can get Mm -hmm. um, because it's the egg and then it transforms into a bird and flies south and after telling this like first part of the story Zhuangzi cites a text which Zhuangzi probably made up and it gets translated in various ways but um I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but the way that Broke Zipperin uh, at the University of Chicago translates it, he translates it as the equalizing joke book. <laughs> and reading that translation, right? Like I just read mm-hmm. it and I'm like, Zhuangzi is citing himself. Like if Zhuangzi could have titled his book, he would have titled it the equalizing joke book. Mm-hmm. Um, like what better title could there be? Um, right. Yeah, like, and stand, it's just like, like stand up Nagarjuna, basically. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, and it, you know, <laughs> no, it does uh, get sorry, into what, sort of. No, I just want to jump in here and mention um, before you continue on with your thought. Um, you, you, when you were giving the translation of the fish name, I was listening to an audio version of the Zhuangzi, and it was based on one of the older translations that was incredibly mm-hmm. anglicized. So at mm-hmm. one point, it like translated a word as Excalibur, and it translated the fish as Leviathan. Speaking of Hobbes, so I just thought that was just an amusing, you know, point about yeah. the nature of translations. But sorry, go on. You were saying? Oh, I was just. Um... Uh, I actually don't remember the exact thing I was going to say. So instead I'll mention another passage Mm -hmm. that I like. Um, Probably my favorite after like going on and on about how funny this book is actually probably my favorite passage in the book is the saddest passage in the book, which is the one where Zhuangzi passes by his friend Huizhi's grave. And Mm -hmm. so many of the passages in the Zhuangzi are these dialogues between Zhuangzi and Huizhi um, usually in which like Huizhi is sort of a bit too much of a logic chopper or hasn't like fully realized sort of the nature of the good life as Zhuangzi understands it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this, there's often this sort of undercurrent of antagonism. Um, although I, I prefer to think of it as friendly antagonism, but some people disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But Zhuangzi passes by Huizhi's grave and he says like, now that Huizhi has died, like Zhuangzi gets sad. He's it's like, now that Huizhi has died, like I have no one to talk to. Um, and it's just this really poignant passage. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I, and I just like getting to that part of the text after like living with other parts of it and seeing these sorts of interactions, um, 
yeah, it moves me on uh, mm-hmm. that passage. Yeah, there's a couple of really great moments where they deal with things like death in a way that is both sort of um, emotionally evocative and very philosophical. There's the part where where one person comes to Zhuang Zhe after Zhuang Zhe's wife has died, and he's like banging away on a bowl and singing and stuff. Um, yeah, and, and that's Huizhe. That's Huizhe who, who mm-hmm. comes to Zhuang Zhe after his wife died. Right, right. And he comes up and he says, you know, how can you possibly be like banging away on a bowl and singing? Shouldn't you be expressing sadness? And Zhuangzi gives the answer of like, yeah, I was I was really super sad. I was heartbroken. And then like, I, you know, he gives a similar answer to what you see again in, in the sort of Greek arguments about the nature of the badness of death, where he's like, well, she didn't exist for a really long time beforehand. So like, why should I like think that, the, you know, that this change is any different in any kind of way? Yeah, and that's one of the things that sort of runs throughout the Zhuangzi that I mm-hmm. really like is just this sort of emphasis on like the world is constantly changing. Like if Zhuangzi has a friend among the pre-Socratics, it's Heraclitus, mm-hmm. except Heraclitus mm-hmm. was kind of stupid because he thought war was good. Um, so <laughs> Zhuangzi does a bit better on that one. But but in terms of the like ontology, um, definitely a friend of Heraclitus there. And mm-hmm. And so much of the Zhuangzi is just about like getting comfortable with the ways that things change. And this could be like uh, you were a criminal and so you had your foot chopped off. Um, you see lots of people who like changed bodily or who are disabled mm-hmm. in some kind of way, uh, not being regarded as inferior because of those changes. And then also, of course, like death and coming to terms with death as one of the many changes or like being comfortable even with the thought that like maybe tomorrow you'll wake up and find out that actually you're a butterfly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you know, that itself is a change, right? And yeah. you should be comfortable with that. Yeah. And like with both sort of Heraclitus and the Buddha, uh, Zhuangzi attach, you know, connects this idea of sort of, constant change to the idea of codependent arising or sort of the the collapse of differences there's a lot of passages where he's you know he basically does that um drill uh you know tweet where it's like you think that good things and bad things are different well it's it's fucking stupid you morons (laughs) yeah yeah there is uh you could see Zhuangzi doing a bunch of uh a bunch of drill tweets um yeah uh, although, like the the drill off the drillosopher's account found the best one, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is the like I forget exactly how it goes, but it's something like um, Yo Hollywood, check this out, and then like <laughs> flop, and then something about like flopping face first and like transforming into dust over the course of centuries. Uh, that's so good. Um, so do you want to talk about, let's see, um, other parables we should get to before we switch gears here. I'd love to talk about the carving one. Um, how it relates to so many other things. You want to explain that one to folks? Yeah. So, um, as I recall that one, right. Cook Ding is this, um, he's like the emperor's chef or something. I forget the exact parameters, but he's something Mm -hmm. like the emperor's Mm -hmm. chef and he's carving up this ox. And he's talking about how like for 19 years or something, he hasn't ever needed to sharpen his knife blade because uh, to borrow the eternal metaphor, right? Because he carves it at the joints and because the knife is sort of always moving through empty space and he's never sort of forcing it anywhere. Um, And so that's like, and so like one way of reading this dialogue or this, this passage is that um, it's a sort of, embodiment of the sort of Taoist idea of like trying not to try of non-action of like following things the way that they go themselves Mm -hmm. um and then sort of avoiding any kind of resistance on any kind of blunting of your tools um uh in contrast to like the strenuous effort of cultivation that the confucians are uh are emphasizing Right. It reminds me of like in the Tao Te Ching where they say like over sharpen the blade and the edge will soon dull. It has sort of that feeling of like if you act in just the right effortlessly effort kind of way, then um, the blade never, ever dulls at all. 
um, which I think is is super cool. And it's it's fascinating how he come he uses the same metaphor that Plato uses in the Phaedrus when he talks about conceptual distinctions and sort of the need of definitions to cleave reality at the joint, which is a different way of interpreting um, this idea. Yeah, and I think like it, it is interesting that like Zhuangzi uses it so differently um, mm-hmm. because like I mean to be to be sort of anachronistic in a totally different way, right? Mm-hmm. You can look at this dialogue and you can see like, um, well, the like particular joints that you're seeing, the particular like way that you're interacting with the ox is sort of driven by this particular task that you're engaging in. There's not this mm-hmm. suggestion. So like, there's like a dose of pragmatism. Again, like I'm being semi-facetious here because it's obviously anachronistic, but like mm-hmm. there is this sort of, there's nothing actually in the dialogue to tell you that like these are the joints that from every perspective you'd have mm-hmm. to recognize. This is always the way that you'd have to carve it up. Um, mm-hmm. It's just the way that you carve it up. If you're the emperor's ox carver. Um, yeah. First of all, I should, we should, we should point out that like Schwang is not going to be, he's going to be the last person who's going to tell you that you can't say that his thing is the same as some other thing. Cause like all things are the same things on his views. So you can say this is pragmatism and it's not anachronistic because what is time? Right. So that, that first of all, yeah. um, and then, yeah, I like that it, when, when he talks about it at the process, it's not, he's become so, perfect at knowing the anatomy of the animals in principle that he can like draw you the map or something it's that he's become so attuned to doing the activity that even when he hits like an animal that's shaped differently or something he just moves slowly and carefully he says and it it always slides its way through yeah and i think so like one one sort of more thing to keep in mind about this Mm -hmm. um about this dialogue, right? So again, like thinking about the Zhuangzi as a sort of fundamentally comedic text, um, that like the, the sort of surface read is that Cook Ding is this Taoist exemplar, this sort of sage mm-hmm. who's figured it out. Um, but there's a really nice book called Genuine Pretending by uh, Muller and D'Ambrosio. Mm-hmm. And what they basically do is like, what if we took the philosophy of the Zhuangzi seriously in light of the fact that it's a book of jokes and looked for like what role comedy is playing. And so they have a really interesting discussion of this passage where they talk about like the way that the cook is described, like carving through the ox, you know, there's kind of a lot of onomatopoeia. And so like, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of like thwack and like if you translate it into English, like, Mm -hmm. and these sort of kind of, funny and kind of stupid sounds um, that maybe like sort of ticks cook thing down a little bit from mm. like being this sort of like perfect sage figure who's like somehow above the rest of us. He's also this comic figure on um, it's interesting that you described that it's like knocking him down because to me like the the sages i mean like the you know waggling my butt in the mud kind of stuff like the sages are comedic characters that like part of the letting go of the attachment is you can you can be this kind of uh, hilarious sort of dopey character and it doesn't matter because you're enlightened or something like that yeah knocking him down was maybe Mm -hmm. it was maybe too confucian a way (laughs) <laughs> to put it, but like, certainly there's a contrast between what, what I really want to say, I guess, is that there's this contrast between the sort of austere, mm-hmm. uh, sort of knows exactly the right ritual actions, Confucian sage. And like, it's just so easy to imagine someone like Mengzi, like never speaking to you again, because you bowed to him the wrong way once, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the sort of really uptight propriety. Um, whereas when you look at like the Zhuangzian exemplar, someone mm-hmm. like cook ding like he is an exemplar in some kind of way but like you know there's mm-hmm. some there's some mess there there's some flacking yeah. going on uh it's not all sort of based around ritual propriety yeah. he's more of a diogenes right he's a diogenes exemplar a discordian that's what, what's part of the reason i love these folks is that they're like hand in hand with my discordians um, yeah 
So let me ask you um, one more, and then we'll switch gears. Sure. I, I, you mentioned to me before, as we were chatting about um, before the show, that you and other friend of the show, Liam Bright, are engaged in writing a dialogue about the Shuangzi or about one of the passages. Do you want to maybe give folks a little preview about what y'all are doing there? What kind of themes are going to be involved? Yeah. So it's still it's still kind of taking shape, but we're talking about one of the text's most famous passages, which is this dialogue on the happy fish mm-hmm. and basically what <laughs> yeah yeah and so Zhuangzi and Huizhi um the scene is basically they're strolling over a bridge uh and the word that's used for strolling is like this word yo that um has been like set up as um a central concept in the text that implies this sort of carefree aimless movement um so they're mm-hmm. strolling over this bridge and Zhuangzi looks down and he sees some fish, um, and the fish are also yo-ing. Um, hmm. uh, somewhat different character, but basically the water radical has been added. So they're swimming, but they're swimming also in this carefree manner. Chill, chill or so it swimming. seems to Zhuangzi. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're darting in and out of areas, doing sort of whatever they please. And Zhuangzi How says... How is fish swim like this? <laughs> Not <a good laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And so Zhuangzi looks down and he says... Um, Ah, look, like, look at the fish swimming in this way. Look at the fish yowing. And uh, aren't they so happy? This is the happiness of fish. And Huizhi challenges him. He's like, well, you aren't a fish. How would you know what makes a fish happy? Uh-huh. Um, and then they, they go through this sort of series of escalating, like, one-upsmanship. And so Zhuangzi comes back like, okay, buddy, you want to be clever with me? Well, you aren't me. Right. So how do you know that I don't know? Right. <laughs> if I can't know that the fish knows, you can't know that I don't know. And Huiza escalates it again. He's like, okay, fine. Let's agree. I don't know what you know, um, but you're still not a fish. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it seems we've now agreed that you don't know that the fish are happy. And then, then it changes gears. So like Zhuangzi gets the last word, of course, it's his book. He gets the last word. And he just totally changes gears. He says that um, uh, Huizhi, even in asking how Zhuangzi knows, like in it, so going back to Huizhi's initial question, you're not a fish, how mm-hmm. do you know? Mm-hmm. And Zhuangzi says, well, you're already presupposing that I know when you ask me how I know. So mm-hmm. like I win. Mm-hmm. And it's just this absurd non sequitur, at least on the surface. It's like a cheap trick. It's pure sophistry. Yep. And so, so what Liam and I are trying to do is we're trying to sort of explore, um, we picked a dialogue format in part because we don't exactly agree and in part because um, uh, it, it allows things to stay open-ended. So we want to explore sort of various ways of making sense of the strange dialogue, uh, the strange interchange. Um, does Is there some like secret logic behind what Zhuangzi says uh, or is it really just a cheap trick? Um, would would the author, the, the sort of hypothetical unitary author of this text, mm-hmm. make Zhuangzi into a fool in this particular way? Um, and so there's like there's sort of the first order discussion of just how do you make sense of this interchange, and then there's we end up sort of getting into meta level interpretive stuff about mm-hmm. uh, the role of Zhuangzi as a character in uh, in the book. Um, we talk about other minds skepticism and. Uh, why Zhuangzi, this like usually skeptical character, thinks that he can make this knowledge claim about another mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the issues um, that we go into, and exactly where we're going to come down, it's still very much a work in progress. So I don't, I don't know, but but that's what we're thinking about. That sounds cool. I like that you raise another point about him, which he does. There are a couple of times in the Zhuangzi where he does these kind of like out maneuvers where it feels like again if he were on twitter or something when he wasn't dropping drill tweets i feel like he would be you know getting in arguments and then being like see because you disagreed with me that proves that you're wrong in some kind of like just absurd way there's like he does a version i think at one point where it's it feels similar to like you know some of like the nagarjuna couplets where it's like a and not a kind of stuff but it's like mm-hmm. you know if you agree with me then you're wrong and if you disagree with me then you're wrong and you like neither disagree nor disagree then you're wrong and he just like he just makes it the case where you just can't even have a conversation um which i think is amusing yeah and i think a lot of that is like 
like there's a famous passage. Um, I forget exactly how they get into it, but there's, there's a discussion mm -hmm. on disagreement mm -hmm. and then it's like, okay, well, if we've got two people disagreeing, right. That's what um, it was. Yes. Yeah. They're, so they're coming at it from different perspectives and it's like, well, could we find someone to like judge this dispute for us? And the hope would be right. That like that person who comes into the dispute is going to have sort of the right objective, uninvested perspective and will mm -hmm. therefore sort of be able to adjudicate. And the point that Zhuangzi makes through some other spokesperson is, well, there are four possibilities, right? You could pick a judge who agrees with me, mm -hmm. um, in which case, right, it's just biased, or, you, or three possibilities, I guess. Or you could pick a judge who agrees with you, uh, in which case they decide in your favor, but again, it's not, uh, not an unbiased choice. Or you could pick someone who doesn't agree with either of us and um, like, then they just can't judge at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like any, any way that you slice it, right. You can't actually, you can't avoid sort of taking some perspective. So I tend to read that particular passage as a denial of what, um, I guess we would now call the view from nowhere. Um, yeah. Jones is definitely insistent that it's always a view from somewhere. Uh, yeah, and I think it's just a bad argument. Like, I think he's just like he's just rejecting the possibility that somebody could be sort of undecided with regard to an issue and then be convinced one way or the other or something like that. Um, yeah, you know. and it's, in its clipped form, like it's easy to see how to respond. Um, I, I can see like Zhuangzi pursuing like, okay, look into how you try and persuade this person mm -hmm. and. Uh, start sort of iterating the argument and then maybe mm -hmm. it gets a bit uh, a bit stronger but yeah i mean as given in the text right it's going to need more development to really become a fully persuasive argument for skepticism but mm -hmm. I, i'm maybe more sympathetic to the core of it that's there yeah. that's fair uh, i mean I, I, i'm i'm genuinely sympathetic to much of the skepticism here i just like to to call him out when he gets little jingly keys about it yeah um, yeah that's so fair Okay, so let's let's switch gears a little bit here. Um, for the, for the second half of the show, I wanted to talk about the the major work that you do in back back over in the Western tradition, which may or may not be the exact same stuff. Like if Zhuangzi is right, it's all the same things just blending together anyway. So, um, but I want to talk about um, scientific realism versus scientific anti-realism. Um, we cover sort of all sorts of reels and not reels on this show and we've talked about scientism some on previous episodes but we haven't really gotten into formally into scientific realism um and this is something that you've done a lot of work on so i was curious could you start maybe by just laying out for us like what are the tenets of scientific realism as a position yeah so uh it's actually kind of hard to do right so like <laughs> Yeah. At the at the most, there are just so many realisms and anti-realisms nowadays. But but at the mm -hmm. most basic level, scientific realism is the view that our best current theories give us a more or less accurate picture of how the world works, and scientific anti-realism is the view that they don't. Um, mm -hmm. And then it gets more complicated because there are like at least four, and you can break it up into more uh, like different kinds of debates that are sort of going on within this general sort of space. Um, mm -hmm. I'll talk about three of them. Not all of them are, are as central, okay. I think. But so one dimension is just like axiological. What does science aim to do? Does uh, uh, science aim to sort of get us at the truth? That would be mm -hmm. an axiological realist position. Or does it just aim to give us successful predictive instruments or to be adequate to observations, what von Frossen calls empirical adequacy, that would be axiologically anti-realist. And so von Frossen's constructive empiricism, right, which is maybe the most famous anti-realism, anti-realist view around today, um, mm -hmm. it's ultimately an axiological anti-realism. You could agree with von Frossen and nonetheless think that our best current theories are at least approximately true. Um, but you'd still be an axiological anti-realist in thinking that, but that's not the aim. Like the aim is really just empirical adequacy. That'd be a kind of weird view. Uh -huh. uh, and what do you, can, but, can you just explain what you mean by empirical ad adequacy as well, just to break that down a little bit? Yeah. So, um, basically that's just supposed to mean like sort of anything you can observe, any data that you can collect, your theory should be consistent with it. Okay. Um, okay. 
whether or not what it says about parts of the world that you can observe. So like electrons and genes and whatever else uh, mm-hmm. that could all be false as long as you're sort of getting correct predictions at the level you can sort of compare directly to evidence. Okay. So theory has got to match the data in that way. Yeah. Yeah. But not necessarily the world. Okay. Um, so, so maybe like to see how this is distinct a little bit, right. Um, someone like Tim Lyons, by contrast, is an axiological realist. He thinks that science aims at, uh, aims at truth, but he stresses like he's a purely axiological realist. He doesn't think that we actually get truth or approximate truth. We just mm. aim at it. So, so that's one way in which some of these dimensions come apart. Uh, so, so it's it's partly a question of what is the goal of science, right? Whether to aim at the truth or aim at functional explanations for whatever we observe in some kind of way. A more pragmatic account, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Um, and von Frossen, in his arguments for constructive empiricism, makes heavy water out of the pragmatic elements of science. Like one of the chapters is the pragmatics of explanation, um, for instance. Okay, so can you give a sense maybe like of what are the downstream consequences going to be within this kind of debate? Like what for folks who, who maybe are, are a little lost on on why we should care which of these two theories wins out, what do you feel like is at stake here? Yeah, so let, let me talk about um, mm-hmm. let me talk a little bit more about dimensions, and then I think it will be clearer because okay. my 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 answer is going to turn on I think one of these sort of kinds of debates is the most interesting one. Uh, mm-hmm. So I will talk about the consequences of it as part of this. Um, so like a second dimension is is epistemic, right? So the mm-hmm. epistemic realist. This is like the way that I presented the basic position is actually an epistemic presentation, right? The epistemic realist says we're getting things more or less right. And the epistemic anti-realist says, uh, says that we're not. Mm-hmm. And then the last dimension is metaphysical, right? Mm-hmm. That it's not just that our scientific theories are approximately true, uh, but also they're sort of telling us um, about sort of the fundamental metaphysical structure of the world. So for instance, going back to carbon nature at the joints, right? Nature has joints and our theories are true in part because they carve nature at those joints. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could be an epistemic realist without going in that sort of full metaphysically realist dimension. Um, so okay. Stathis Silos is a realist who argues that like a consistent realist is going to have to be a metaphysical realist, but he's, he's wrong about that. <laughs> Why? How would you, how would you be, so how would you believe that there, that we are, able to get at the truth but there's no metaphysical joints or distinctions sure so like we can make true claims about um species for Uh instance okay even though like species are not sort of unambiguously bounded in many cases at least not unambiguously bounded things where we just find out like exactly sort of what entity um, we're carving out when we designate mm-hmm. something a species. And there's a heavy role for pragmatics in shaping the categories that we use, even though we can mm-hmm. still say true things about them. Um, and so you could be, that that would be sort of how you're um, an epistemic realist while being a metaphysical anti-realist okay. or, or some kind of quietist or something. Okay, Yeah. Cool. And so I think, um, I think that the epistemic axis is the most interesting of these. And on this, I'm persuaded by arguments that Kyle Stanford has put, uh, put forward sort of all the work that I do on scientific realism is in some way of like reaction to and sorting through things that, uh, that Kyle has said, because I think his work is really, really good Mm -hmm. on this. Um, And what he basically says is like, well, think about like, if you think that our basic picture of the world is more or less right, um, or you think that it's, not more or less right. Think about how this is going to impact the kind of research that you fund, the kind of research that you think is worth doing. If you think we've got things more or less right, then the kind of research worth doing is sort of just research uh, that explores and fleshes out sort of the space of ideas that we've sort of already come up with. Um, Mm. You're not going to fund sort of novel research that's sort of beating around in the dark, trying to sort of come up with new ideas and expose our current theories to challengers. 
Mm-hmm. And and one of the points that Stanford makes is he thinks that um, you know people will argue back and forth on this, but he's made the case that science, as it's now organized, is sort of fundamentally sort of organized in this conservative realist kind of way. And mm-hmm. as an anti-realist, what he wants is to see like not that we shouldn't keep fleshing out our current views, of course, but that we should do more to um, devote more resources to exploring conceptual space that we haven't explored yet. Um, and that mm-hmm. I think is like a genuine, um, genuinely sort of important upshot of this debate. Of course, as one of my students told me when I presented this in, in class to them, uh, we also just want to know whether we're getting things right. Like pure curiosity mm-hmm. has a role to play as well. Sure. Right. We, there's, <laughs> if nothing else, there's pleasure in feeling like you're getting something right. And that has value. Um, so, but yeah, I think, that that's sort of a good a good way to put it that like if you if you tend to think that we have successfully invented the wheel you do not devote more resources to reinventing the wheel so that that is an important yeah, yeah. downstream implication there um so so say more a little bit more about what view you defend you got that right there at the end um and and why why you yeah. take that position yeah so uh the work that I've done on this, uh, which is collaborative with another philosopher, uh, Raphael Scholl, who uh, I think he gets all the credit for anything good about the paper, but standard. Yeah, I, basically, basically, what we're doing is sort of attempting to respond to some of Kyle Stanford's arguments for anti-realism, and basically, we want to say that well, his arguments are basically right, but they're of more limited scope than he thinks. And so we end up defending a sort of modest form of epistemic realism about the biological sciences, which is what we know. Mm -hmm. And so Stanford's basic argument uh, rests on what he calls the problem of unconceived alternatives. So he tries to show that when we're studying remote domains of nature, uh, scientists are actually quite poor at exhausting the hypothesis space. Mm -hmm. And in particular, they're bad at coming up with all or even most of the hypotheses that the evidence that they have available to them would support. So they're always sort of selecting among a very limited range of theories uh, Mm -hmm. with no particular reason necessarily to think that the true theory is among the ones that they've conceived. And so this is, this is the problem of unconceived alternatives that like you can't test your theory against things that you haven't even thought of. And is this exacerbated by the fact that there are theoretically infinite hypotheses to explain any given set of data? Yeah. So that plays a role, but I think one of the things that Stanford tries to do is he tries to suggest that like there are, it's not just that they're sort of hypothetically infinite mm-hmm. hypotheses, but that like there are sort of, you know, if you just wait long enough in the history, you can see these alternatives be developed. So even within the like nearby space that people eventually got around to exploring, there were mm-hmm. these alternatives that were unconceived uh, and mm-hmm. that because they were unconceived, right. Even though they were supported just as well by the evidence available, right. They just never actually played a role in the, in the testing. And so he tries to give it like, he, he tries to give the sort of abstract problem that there are sort of indefinitely many mm-hmm. possible hypotheses. He tries to give that some like historical flesh, uh, which I appreciate. Can you give maybe one of the historic examples of where this became really important? Yeah. So Stanford's own case study is uh, histories of theories of heredity in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Darwin has uh, pangenesis theory. Um, uh, Galton has stirp theory. I don't remember mm-hmm. all the details of exactly how these theories works. And then uh, Weissman has another theory and like, and you see, it's a bit complicated because in that work he focuses just on individual scientists, but each of these scientists thinks that like they've gotten sort of the only possible explanation that fits the evidence. And then someone coming along later develops a theory that does at least as well with respect to the evidence that they had, that the first person had. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like the point being made is sort of that like these scientists in, in the 19th century, studying heredity and development sort of systematically overestimated um, their ability to exhaust the hypothesis space. And lo and behold, right, they were, uh, their theories turned out to be wrong, all three of them. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. So, so what does this mean then? Like, sort of, what's your perspective? You said you do, you adopt a sort of moderate uh, epistemic realism. Does that does that mean that we can still use inference to the best explanation to some extent? How does this work out? Yeah. So, so the point that Raphael and I are making in our paper is that Stanford's argument is a really serious problem for using inference to the best explanation in these sorts of remote domains of nature. But our argument is that a lot of our uh, a lot of our biological knowledge is not actually arrived at through um, inference to the best explanation. Instead, it meets something that we call the um, the vera causa ideal, uh, which is a nod to uh, the 19th century philosopher John Herschel. Um, mm -hmm. And we try to argue that you can mitigate the problem of unconceived alternatives um, in a way that's more difficult when relying on inference to the best explanation. So like one way to think about it is that, uh, um, so like a remote domain of nature here is just going to be something that's relative to human perceptual capacities. Mm -hmm. uh, so Stanford talks about it. So, um, you know, we're pretty good at, uh, to use the phrase that philosophers love, right? We're pretty good at dealing with middle-sized dry goods that aren't moving too fast. Mm -hmm. um, but then things start getting tricky. So like some processes are too small for us to see. So particle collisions inside the Large Hadron Collider, uh, mm -hmm. or they might be too far away, processes going on in distant galaxies. Uh, so too far away in space or too far away in time. So evolutionary history, uh, or they might be too fast. So like protein folding is both too small and too fast, um, or they might be too slow. So like mountain formation, all these processes are sort of hard for us to get at given our sort of perceptual limitations. Mm -hmm. And when we're working in sort of non-remote non domains, right, we can sort of directly perceive what's going on. I know that the table in front of me is brown uh, because I can see it. I don't need to like infer that that's the best explanation of anything. I can just see it. Directly. Even though it's not actually brown, right? Uh, well, yeah. So that's another another problem. But uh, <laughs> okay. we're we're gonna put that aside for okay, the moment. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, uh, by contrast, right in in remote domains of nature, right? If I look at a fly and I see that it has legs growing where its antenna should be, and I want to know what the cause of that is, right? What the hereditary cause of that is? Mm -hmm. I can't just see the cause, right? It's a particular genetic mutation called antennapedia. Um, but I can't just like see like the nature of that mutation uh, mm -hmm. in any kind of way. And so the thought of inference to the best explanation is that, well, what we do is we observe what we can, and then we start postulating various possible causes. So inference to the best explanation is a sort of way of sort of, sorry, let me, let me step back. So we postulate mm -hmm. various possible causes um, we've generated multiple explanations and then inference to the best explanation tells us, well, select the best of those. And the exact criteria, uh, for what makes an explanation better than another is still very much a matter of dispute, mm -hmm. but usually it's something like being simple, being coherent with sort of well-established theories in other areas, uh, uh, being generally applicable and so on. So not explaining everything is a special case. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's another debate about how to weight these virtues in addition to what these virtues are. But assuming that we can, assuming that we sort of get the virtues and that we can weight them, the thought is that inference to the best explanation gives us cognitive access to remote domains of nature. Mm -hmm. um, this is what Raphael and I are skeptical of. So like to, to answer your question about whether we can ever use inference to the best explanation, like the sort of paradigm case where inference to the best explanation is going to work well is going to be a case where you sort of have good reason to think that hypothesis space uh, at least the plausible hypothesis space right the full mm -hmm. hypothesis space is indefinite and there's nothing you can do but the plausible hypothesis space this goes back to the point about stanford earlier the plausible hypothesis space is constrained and when mm -hmm. it's constrained then you can get a grip on the problem of unconceived alternatives you don't have to worry about it so much so a doctor who looks at a range of symptoms um, and infers that the patient has a particular disease, right, can be understood as doing a kind of inference to the best explanation. And it works precisely because the doctor has reasonably exhaustive knowledge of the possible causes of that particular array of symptoms. And there's still some chance that, like, it's some undiscovered disease or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But it's not, right, it's not as deep a worry there.
but when you're exploring new conceptual territory, um, then, uh, then Raphael and I think that inference is the best explanation becomes much less reliable for exactly the reason that Stanford gives this problem of unconceived alternatives. And that's why we recommend um, thinking about the Vera Causa uh, standard as, as an alternative. Yeah. And can you explain that, that standard a little bit more for me? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the basic idea is that um, inference comes first and mm. explanation comes second. So if you're going to invoke some cause and an explanation, right, you should already have reason to think that the cause exists beyond merely its explanatory power. Uh, and okay. when you have that, then you're invoking a true cause. So like the doctor, right, who knows um, the sort of plausible hypothesis space, right? It's because we sort of have done work already to sort of figure out what's uh, what's in that space. And then um, once we have that knowledge, right, then we can infer to explanations uh, within it. But the hope would be, uh, and I'll say a bit more about this, the hope would be that how that space gets set up, how that space gets explored is not initially through, uh, through inference to the best explanation. Ah, so if it's not through that, what would it be through then? Yeah. So, so the sort of first move here is that Raphael and I start thinking about remoteness a little bit differently than Stanford does. So okay. Stanford, um, so like von Frossen has the observable unobservable distinction, which is just this hard and fast line where, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's the stuff you can observe and there's the stuff you can't. And then empirical adequacy concerns the stuff you can observe. Mm -hmm. Stanford, Stanford's idea of remote domains of nature loosens that a little bit. I know I'm still not answering your question directly, but I promise I'm getting there. <laughs> uh, Stanford, Stanford loosens that a little bit. So it becomes more of a sliding scale of how remote you are, how good we are at sort of getting mm -hmm. access to processes in various areas. But still, like, it's still remote relative to perceptual capabilities. And, but if you think about, like, what's going on in perception, right, you're creating, perception creates an informative causal chain between us and some bit of the world. And while so do scientific instruments and experiments. And so remoteness should actually be relativized to these instruments and techniques. And so domains of nature that were remote become sort of accessible. They get closer to us over time. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that this happens, okay, so now I'm going to answer your question. One of the ways that this happens, right, is by sort of generating precise difference-making information. Um, so vary some hypothetical cause, right, and see if the effect varies. Um, and so my, my collaborator here, um, Raphael, has a nice paper, which is unfortunately not out yet, as far as I can tell, uh, but where he shows that when you have properly controlled experiments, uh, you mm -hmm. can generate what's called an argument from the good lot. Um, so the problem of unconceived alternatives is a kind of version of the best of a bad lot problem that if you only generate sort of false theories, mm -hmm. then inference to the best explanation is going to select the best of a bad lot. It's going to select the best sucky theory mm -hmm. um, precisely because you haven't exhausted the hypothesis space. I call but in some ethics. cases, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And so like, but in some cases uh, you can exhaust the hypothesis space. So if you ask the question, right, does cause C have effect E? There are two possible answers, right? Yes, no. Um, and, you know, that's trivial, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, you can also, like, is this theory true? Yes, no. But the difference is that if you just ask about, like, a big theory, is this theory true? Yes or no? Uh, you can sometimes get the answer no, but you can never really get the answer yes, so you can mm -hmm. exhaust the hypothesis space, but you can't actually do tests that put you clearly on either side of it. But with causal questions, that's precisely what we're able to do, right? Uh, you can design experiments that will sort of show you whether a cause has a particular effect or not. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that like the problem of unconceived alternatives goes away entirely, never goes away entirely, but it appears in a new kind of form. It appears in a in, in the form of the problem of confounding variables mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and confounding variables are manageable. And therefore the sort of problem of alternatives that they give rise to is manageable. Um, so for example, one of the cases from our paper, right? So we basically take Stanford's case study of heredity and development into the 20th century and suggest that like, yeah, in the 19th century, they were doing inference to the best explanation, 
Um, they were sort of positing things because they could explain uh, various phenomena of heredity and development. Mm-hmm. But by the 20th century, they were actually getting this kind of precise difference-making information. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the famous um, Avery et al. experiments that showed that DNA and not protein has hereditary effects, right? Mm-hmm. That work, like, it's a beautiful experiment, um, but the work wasn't immediately decisive. They had to do follow-up work. And the follow-up mm-hmm. work was sort of devoted precisely to sort of getting purer and purer samples of DNA to eliminate any possibility of um, of uh, confounding by proteins. Right. So this is, this is how you beat Hume, basically, right? You just keep keep trying to eliminate the possibility of there being any confounding causal explanations here? Yeah, and like, you know, of course, like you can always start hypothesizing <laughs> um, alternatives, but it, it becomes much less clear that like there's there's really this sort of unbounded range of alternatives um, mm-hmm. when you're when you're able to isolate uh, uh, isolate sort of particular things um, mm-hmm. uh, in these ways, uh, you know, eventually like you run out of space for other things. Mm. Yeah. Tell me about it. We're running out of time on the show and I'm, it's, uh, it's unfortunate because this is very fascinating and I didn't get a chance to ask you about homology yet, but I think maybe we'll have to save that and have you back on at some point to discuss your work on homology. Um, yeah, well, that, it's... that work is sort of still in the very early stages, so I don't actually okay. have a huge amount to say about it yet. So, um, yeah, you know, ask then me we'll in have two you back when it, is, when it is in the middle stages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, great. So uh, now that we've, we're coming to the end, of course, we have to do the, the proper end of show ritual and engage in our realism, anti-realism lightning round. Um, right. Some folks had asked about this, so I just wanted to clarify again for folks who are tuning in for the first time, perhaps, um, what this is and why why we do this. Um, well, I, I, I sort of got this activity going because it occurred to me that philosophers are rarely forced to say whether they think that a large number of things are real or not real at any given time. We always get to hide in one little subfield and talk about realism with regard to consciousness versus not or something like that. So um, I I thought it would be fun and a particularly unique kind of torture to get philosophers to go on the record on a variety of things very quickly with regard to real versus not real. Um, And I do think that the suffering is real. I think that people are genuinely experiencing suffering during this trial. So here are the rules. Uh, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me either real or not real. And you don't get to hedge. You don't get to say kind of real or anything like that. Um, And then at the end, maybe if you want, you can explain a little bit about which real, why you said certain things. So sound fair? All right. Sure. You ready? Is your readiness ready? Yeah. Is it real? Uh, My my readiness reels. Okay. All right. The external world. Not real. Not real. Colors. Not real. Phenomenal consciousness. Not real. So qualia. Not real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Free will. Not real. Selves. Not real. Personal identity. Not real. Genders. Not real. Races. Not real. Species. Not real. Mm, Morality. Not real. (laughs) Rights. Not real. A priori knowledge. Not real. (laughs) A posteriori knowledge. Not real. (laughs) Quietists. Uh, Propositional attitudes. Not real. Ideas. Not real. Modalities. Not real. Gods. Not real. Society. Not real. <laughs> Why is that one always a stumbling block? That's interesting. Uh, numbers. Not real. Abstract entities. Not real. Fictional characters. Not real. Holes. Not real. Chairs. Not real. 
Sandwiches. Not real. Science. <laughs> Not real. Oh, come on. <laughs> uh natural laws not real you can't goad me if i'm not allowed to explain (laughs) it's fair it's fair uh beauty not real and last but not least just for you causality not real oh all not reals huh is anything real uh you could have put anything in front of me there and i would have said not real because i was uh Mm. I am at least like reasonably tempted by uh, something like Nagarjuna's position that um, if you distinguish between like conventional truth, which has these sort of mm-hmm. deeply pragmatic elements, um, uh, then sort of nothing exists ultimately. Uh, and so I mm-hmm. answered everything from the ultimate perspective. I would have given you more varied. Uh, more varied answers if I was answering from the conventional perspective, because some of these things are conventionally real and others aren't. Uh, but uh, then I would have had to think, so I took the easy route. All right. I'm now adding dharmas to the list just to force the Nagarjuna fiends who I keep having on this show to have to admit that something is real. Oh, but dharmas aren't real either for Nagarjuna. Okay, that, that's why the Abhidharma great. tradition is is wrong. They think dharmas are real, but Nagarjuna is not having it. All right, we'll debate that another time. Right. <laughs> That's oh man, it's too much. All right. Um, well, other Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your work? Uh, yeah, uh, pretty much everything that I've done that you might want to find is at uh, com. That's not true. Everything that you, we want to you do that we want to find is on your Twitter account. So give us your Twitter oh, handle so we can find your hilarious philosophy jokes. Oh, abs- absolutely not allowed to look at my Twitter. Um, but if you did want to look at my Twitter, it's, if you know my name, you can find it. Mm, it's good stuff. Okay, it's it's at A M N E M A C H I N, which is the name of a mountain whose first three letters share my initials. Just, you know, try to find the account that's clearly trying to get itself canceled at all times. Yes. It's not hard to hard to miss. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks um, for having me on. Yeah. I'll see you back on the Twitters. Yeah. See you there. Bye. Thank you so much to our patrons for making this show possible. We really couldn't do this without you. Uh, special thanks to our $20 tier patrons. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Give me those sweet, sweet utils. And Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thank you so very much to our still soul, but going strong, $40 tier patron, Dave Maslich. I really appreciate y'all. Um, if you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating or review on whatever podcast app you have available to you. Uh, follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you can, support us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void and the void is you. The void.